this morning to talk politics or candidates. Certainly not who you should vote for, that's not my business. But I am here this morning to ask you a question with a simple Bible answer. Does God care what happens in this presidential election this year? And my immediate response is, I think he does. In a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, the Apostle Paul offers some encouragement that we need to claim as Christians in this world where many of us are shaking our heads over impossible-looking options. Paul writes to his son, here are my instructions. Number one, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. A two-piece puzzle that God gives us this election year. We're to pray for leaders, every person who's in authority. It's an interesting place to start because the truth is that no national leader should need to be our natural enemy. He or she is under God's authority. So why do we pray for those that we tend to sling mud at? And that's not said very well, admittedly, but Paul says we do that in order that we might live peaceful and quiet lives, focusing on godliness and dignity. They may not, others around us may not do that, but by God's direction, you and I, I believe, must do that. I'd like to live a peaceful and quiet life. But someone here might say, isn't that a cop-out? I think not. I well remember a respected theologian of yesteryear who said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder in this world. And I say amen and amen. I have never seen a year like this. If that was true in his day, how much more in 2016? Or to say it in another way, until we have earnestly prayed for our leaders, we have no right to talk negatively about any man or woman. I just threw that in as a sidebar for no extra charge. It would be impossible for me to suggest any passage of Scripture and say about it, this is the most important passage in the Bible. But I am going to share with you some of my own study and observations of a passage that to me ranks near the top, if not the top. First, let me admit that this passage blows my mind 
to comprehend all that, that it includes. And I will be greatly surprised if we don't spend the first 10,000 years or maybe 20,000 years or the first 100,000 years in the new earth listening to our Father talk to us, our Heavenly Father talk to us about His Son. I know that there are some people who take mind-boggling passages and tend to say, well, I can't understand it, I'm not going to even try. That's not good. I believe that God is well pleased when we're willing to give time and attention enough to daydream about passages we don't understand entirely. God is well pleased. This morning I want to talk about Jesus. We don't begin to understand the fullness of his name or his mind. But there's a tantalizing text in the book of Philippians that was our scripture reading this morning that I want to call your attention to. And it starts out like this, Philippians 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I need to stop right there at least to begin with, is it really possible for me or for you to have the mind of Jesus? I can hear someone say to me, are you out of your mind? It's philosophically impossible for us to have the mind of Jesus. But my friend, I would like to point out that Jesus essentially turned all heaven upside down and some of earth too, in order to make it possible for you to have his mind. And I think that is awesome. There's something I need to share with you that I only discovered this last Sabbath. That first verse of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. It's that word, let. I had never thought of it until last Sabbath, but let is a word that we tend to take as a rather passive word, let. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But in the original, that word is not that way at all. That word let is an aggressive word. I looked it up. And it has such words to, as uh, synonyms that go like this, to have, to hold, to keep, to possess, to retain, to take, to seize. Those are aggressive words. When God says let, it means it's yours if you'll have it. I can best illustrate right out of the first part of the Bible, the creation story. It says, in the beginning, God created. And the first action that he took that's recorded, God said, let there be what? Light. And what are the next words? And there was light. That's our heavenly friend Jesus at work. He said, let there be light, and instantly there was light. 
just like that. No environmental impact study, no polls about getting the pulse of the people. In fact, there were no people around at that point. No one to hold God back. He said it, and it was there. Light, and then atmosphere, and then dry land. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. That's how the whole creation came together with two exceptions. One was named Adam and one was named Eve. God chose to make them a little differently. And that has its own story that I won't take time to get into this morning. But when God said, let there be light, there was light just like that. We tend to make things too complicated. God says the word. And it's there. Matthew 5:16. Several texts in Scripture that I could use to illustrate this, and I won't get into most of them, but I'll share a few. Matthew 5:16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? It's not of us, it's of Jesus. They may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. John 14 and verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. And verse 27, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That isn't a passive, permissive sort of word. That's a word that Jesus wants to give us head on and full of meaning. Romans, the sixth chapter in the twelfth verse let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. And my friends, the good news is that's an aggressive verse. That's a promise if we're willing to claim it. Doesn't always mean that it may happen instantaneously. It depends on the situation. But by God's grace, if he says it, he means it. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 14, let all you do be done with love. Aggressive words. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus turned heaven almost upside down to make this a reality. In fact, I'd like to talk a little bit about the upside downness of what Jesus did. To me, the even bigger question is, what would we do with the mind of Jesus if we had it? Would we value it? And the other question is so obvious, I shouldn't even have to say it, but I'm going to anyway. How often in your prayer life have you asked for the mind of Jesus? Have you ever asked for the mind of Jesus? I think he is well pleased when we pray prayers like, please, dear Jesus, give us your mind. I'd like to review the first four verses of Philippians 2 and talk about Jesus a bit. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What was Jesus willing to do as a prelude to giving us his mind? I'd like for you to take this outline, if you will, and I'd like to go through it. It has immense proportions, I think, but I'm going to try and summarize at least this morning. There is a tug of war going on in our world today, a tug of war between right and wrong, between Satan and Christ. It's, an, it's a massive tug of war. And the Bible in two places summarizes that tug of war like this. He talks about, Paul talks about the mystery of iniquity. And I said, said to myself quite a few years ago, what in the world is that? The mystery of iniquity. And I can summarize it in these few words, man aspiring to be God. Just read a passage this week that says, we are people prone to follow the suggestions of Satan. The only way that we can hope not to do that on a regular basis is to have the mind of Christ. It's the only way it works. But we, like Satan, have tended to say, I want the power and authority of God. Now, if we said we wanted the character of God, that could be a different story. But most of us are more interested in power and authority than we are character. But there's a second mystery. It's the mystery of godliness. And that's the story of God condescending to be man. God condescending to be man. Now, condescending is a kind of a negative word with some people. Condescending almost sounds like a, a put-down, a come-down, a, a, you know, I'm better than you are. The only thing about Jesus was he was better than we are. But by his gracious willingness to give up what he possessed, he was willing to become a man. So, I'd like to talk about that condescension, that stepping down. There are seven steps that Jesus took to go down, down, down in order to become useful to us in a special way. He started out as God. God is very God. Jesus, well, Christ was God, is God, always has been and always will be, but he chose voluntarily to set a lot of that aside, and he began stepping down. So God, number one, was willing, number two, to become a son. And some of you may disagree with me on this, but I believe that that was a very significant stepping down. He became a son. I'm not talking about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. I'm talking about Jesus being willing to become the son of his father by declaration, not by birth. Zechariah, the sixth chapter in the 13th verse, talks about a council of peace that the Godhead 
they had a huddle and they were talking about what they would do if sin came and they began to make some some provisions they took some steps to prepare for the coming of sin not because they wanted to but because they could see it coming and they knew they had to take it head on one of the things that Jesus did at that point I believe was to become a son by designation in order that he could begin to be seen as someone who was he was not in his rightful place as God he was beginning to do something else and it kind of stymied many in the universe I believe Hebrews the first chapter if you study the first five verses Hebrews the fifth chapter and study the first five verses you will see that the father said of the son you are my son this day I have begotten you I believe that was well before he came to this earth as a human being but by designation he became subservient to his father a position that he was willing to take not for a few years at most but for the rest of eternity and what will the father do well we'll get to that that's the end of the story number three the Bible talks about Michael I have a grandson named Michael and I discovered that his name means who is like God do I want my grandson to be like God well the answer is yes but not in the way that Satan wants to be like God I want him to be like God in character and unfortunately we have an angel who in the beginning was was known as, known of as Lucifer but he got into a contest with God and eventually according to Revelation the 12th chapter was thrown out of heaven and the archangel spot was vacant Jesus the Christ became an archangel that doesn't mean he became an angel the word archangel is an old English word that means to be ruler of the angels the place that Lucifer had Michael took his place to direct the activities of the angels for a spell until another angel was chosen as the archangel Jesus is that one and whenever we see Michael in Scripture it's always in a contest between God and Satan that's what that's the way it comes in the book of Daniel in the book of Revelation in the book of Jude in the book of first Thessalonians but that archangel eventually is going to come with a trumpet and a loud voice and wake the dead and Satan will tend to say you can't have them they're mine and God will say no they have asked me to be in charge of their lives and they are mine Moses was a sample of that in the book of Jude it talks about the contest between Christ and Satan at the grave of Moses and and Satan said you can't have him and Christ said 
I rebuke you in the name of the Father, I rebuke you. And Moses was resurrected and taken to heaven. That's a sample of what God is going to do with lots of people. Michael, the archangel, the, the God who became, stepped down to become man. And number four is man, human being. Philippians 2 makes that very clear. He became a human being. But he didn't just descend to a palace somewhere. Number five, he became a servant. He became like a servant. In um, stepping into a carpenter shop and learning the carpenter's trade, spending a, a horrendous amount of his time on earth working in a carpenter shop. It's incredible. The God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, became a carpenter of all things. There's lots of implications in that that I won't take time for. Number six, he not only was willing to come and live here, he was willing to come and die here. Number six is death. And number seven sounds like it's related to it. It's, it's a, a huge step that Jesus took. Number seven is the second death. It's the death that every person must die unless they choose Jesus as their substitute. It's the second death. And there are implications in there I still stand in awe about. How could Jesus die the second death and be resurrected? But he did because of who he was. And so we have the stepping down of Jesus from God to son to Michael to man to servant to death to second death. But then we go across to the other side of the page. And I would like to read the next section of Philippians chapter 2 beginning with verse 9. Therefore God, that's talking about the Father, also has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, that takes in a whale of a lot of territory. But number eight, the beginning of Jesus' exaltation was resurrection. An angel came from heaven and said to him, your father's calling you. And Jesus was resurrected. Lots in that that I won't get into this morning. But he was not resurrected to any kind of a corruptible death again. He was resurrected to a life that never ends. And that is number nine. A life that will never end. And then in number 10 is ascension. John 20 and verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, I need to go to my father and your father. And he did. And eventually he was taken up in a cloud, Acts 1 and verses 9 to 11. Powerful verses, I think. Jesus ascended up into heaven. And number 11, what is his primary work today? Intercession. 
Hebrews 7.25, I like that verse so much. It says that He ever lives to make intercession for us. Like a woman shopping in a mall, she lives to shop. Well, Jesus lives to intercede. That's wonderful for us, you know. He doesn't forget us. He intercedes for us. It's a wonderful thing. And number 12, he has the keys of hell and of death. There's so much in that. But basically, I see the Father and the Holy Spirit saying to people who, are, who have questions about hell and death, you go to Jesus. He's the authority on that because he suffered all of it. Keys of hell and of death. And Psalm 24, what a wonderful psalm. Number 13 is coronation. Jesus was coronated as the king of the universe again. An incredible going up and up and up as we look at things. I don't, I'm not sure that heaven looks at it that way. But Jesus was coronated as the king of the universe. Who is this king of glory? Open the gates of the temple and let him come in and all of that. It's wonderful. And number 14, the crowning number in this outline. The Father gave to Jesus a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And we don't begin to understand what that takes in. But I will say this. Revelation, the 15th chapter, gives us a view of Jesus and His wonderful work. And you and I will have the awesome privilege of singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And I grew up with the idea that the only one that could ever sing the song of the Lamb would be those that are in touch with Jesus. But you know, I've learned since that God has a totally different plan for that. God has a plan to bring the universe to the point where every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. That includes the righteous, that includes the wicked, that includes the evil angels, and that includes Satan himself. He will voluntarily get on his knees and say, only you are holy. In essence, admitting that Jesus was right all the time and that he was wrong. The only thing that boggles my, well, I shouldn't say the only thing, but one of the things that boggles my mind about that is he will voluntarily freely admit that that's true, but he will get up off his knees and he will say to the wicked, come, let's take these, this city, all these people in the city, we can take it and make it ours. How could he do that? Because, and again, you may disagree with me, he is insane. <laughs> he really believes that he can take it. And brothers and sisters, it's all over then. Revelation makes that very clear. Now, I want to go to a bit of an affirmation an explanation. And let's see if I can get this together here. 
I've been kind of sharing without paying much attention to my notes, so you can forgive me for that. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is an application that I want you to have today. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Has that verse ever puzzled you? That sounds so legalistic, doesn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. I'd like to quote the New Living Translation on that. Work hard. And again, that sounds legalistic, doesn't it? Work hard to show the results of your salvation. That's not legalistic at all. It's a willingness for us to say to God, well, what should we say to God? If Jesus offers you his mind, what would you say? What I would challenge you to say is amen and amen. What does amen mean? It means so be it. That's the way it ought to be. That's what I want. If Jesus offers you his mind, say amen. Amen. That's for me. But this translation says in verse 13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. How does it happen? It's an act of God's care for us. He loves us so much. He'll help us get through whatever it is that we're facing. Gives it to us as a gift, the mind of Jesus. It's incredible. So be it. That's what I want and desperately need. Um, we have a Father, a Heavenly Father, who loves us so much that we will never really understand His care until we get to know Him personally. And thank Him for the greatest gift that He gave to the human race, the gift of Jesus. Oh, that we would value Him for who He really is. I want to tell you about an Adventist leader that I've come to admire, even though I didn't get to study under him. He was a teacher at the seminary for quite a number of years. His name, Miroslav Kish. Some of you may have heard of him or know him. I don't know. Unfortunately, he died February of this year. But he was a giant Christian, and he would tell his classes a bit of his own story, how our Heavenly Father came to mean so much to him. Born in Yugoslavia in 1942, he was number 10 of 11 children. When he was two years old, his father died. He became the man of the family, quite literally, in a home that was without a father. Because of that background, partly, he became fiercely independent in his spirit, depending on no one. But you know, that kind of got in his way oftentimes in life. For example, in 1971, he became attracted to a young lady, and he ended up marrying her. And something happened that bothered him a great deal. They moved to the Adventist Seminary campus in France 
so that he could complete his theological training. Money was tight, and his bride was Brenda, and her father, who lived in California, would call from time to time. He was genuinely interested in what was going on in the family, and he was trying to get a little feel of what they might need, how he could help in the best possible way. But Miroslav was fiercely independent, and while he told the truth, he did not speak in any detail about the needs that he and his bride actually had. So one day, after this had gone on for some time, one day they got in the mail a rather large check, and Miroslav's heart sank. One day, his father-in-law called and said, did you get the check? And Miroslav said, yes. But thinking that his father-in-law was, had a picture of him as a, as a person who was a ogre of some kind and wasn't providing well for this man's daughter, he said, why did you send the check rather begrudgingly? To which his father-in-law responded rather quietly, because you call me dad. And Miroslav folded inside. He got all teary, and he handed the phone to his wife. He couldn't talk anymore. He was done. But he couldn't get over it either, because you call me dad. Brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father is like that. You and I tend to become what Miroslav called intentional orphans. We are fiercely independent. We want to do it ourselves. We want it our way or no way. But you know, our Heavenly Father doesn't work that way. He loves us so much that He wants to do for us more than we can ask or think. And because of that, He was willing to give us a gift, the greatest gift in the universe by the name of Jesus. This morning, I'd like to have you join me in a chorus, if you will. Is it going to be on the screen? I forgot to ask. God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. Why don't we just sing this song together? And if you haven't heard it before, let's sing it as best we can the first time, and then we'll sing it a second time. And hopefully you can enter into it with all your heart. Let's, would you give us an introduction? God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. He can save, He can keep, He can cleanse, and He will. God can do anything 
but fail. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. Oh, God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. Now, I hope you can put your heart into it. Let's sing together. God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. He can save, He can keep, He can cleanse, and He will. God can do anything but fail. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. God can do anything 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 God can do anything but <laughs> thank you father for the wonderful privilege of being on a winning team so many times in our lives we feel like everything's against us but this morning, we thank you for the good news that we have a Father who loves us more than we will ever know until we really get to know Him. This morning, we thank you for Jesus and His willingness to step down and down and down and down and down beyond imagination. Thank you for what you've done as a loving Father to lift Him up and lift Him up and lift Him up and acknowledge that He has done the impossible in making it possible for us to have his mind. We ask for the mind of Jesus this morning. I pray that you can live in us and work in us and grow us and help us to become like you in every way. And we will thank you and thank you and thank you throughout eternity in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.